Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 406th edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're listening to Voice America Business Channel, and we're broadcasting across the world in this, our ninth year. I've just arrived back in Los Angeles after a whirlwind 10 days in Ecuador in South America. If you haven't been there, Ecuador is fabulous. We absolutely loved it. We're able to have a great time. We did some good business. So that's a perfect combination. Excuse my voice. I think it's too many aeroplane cabins. On, on Sunday night, we went to the OMD and B-52 concert at the Microsoft Theatre in LA. OMD were terrific. And chatting afterwards with lead singer Andy McCluskey, Andy came up with one of the best lines I have ever heard. He was about to get on the tour bus to um, head to Portland for the next show. And he said that nothing's really changed. There are as many drugs on the bus now as there was back in the early 80s. But the uppers and downers and the coke have been replaced by arthritis pills and statins. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Now, here on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, we love great, inspiring news stories. And this story is sad, in some ways tragic, yet it is really seriously inspirational. A guy named Doug Lindsay, in his first day of senior year classes in 1999, the biology major collapsed at home. The symptoms were intense and untreatable. His heart would race, he felt weak, and he was dizzy. He could only walk about 50 feet, and he couldn't stand for more than a couple of minutes. Now, the former high school track athlete wanted to become a biochemistry professor. Instead, he spent the next 11 years confined to a hospital bed with an ailment that nobody could diagnose. Can you imagine lying in bed for 11 years? Shit, that wouldn't be fun. Now, doctors were baffled, and whatever was wrong with him ran in the family. By the time Lindsay was 18 months old, his mother could no longer pick him up. By the time he was four, she couldn't walk anymore. And uh, others in the family developed the same ailment. Now, Lindsay was bedridden 22 hours a day, seeing specialists from endocrinology, neurology, internal medicine and other specialties. Then he realised that none of these doctors were giving him any answers, so if he was going to figure out his predicament, he'd have to work it out on his own. So bearing in mind that he's only in um, first level of high school, he read a 2,200-page endocrinology textbook. It's got to be as boring as batshit, and it's got to be really worse when you don't understand it. And in it, he found a passage discussing how adrenal disorders could mirror thyroid disorders. So he zeroed in on his adrenal glands. He hypothesized that the whole class of, or <laughs> these are all hard words, or autonomic 
nervous system disorders could exist beyond the knowledge of what most endocrinologists or neurologists knew. So he cobbled together the cash for a computer and he got to work. He found the National Disautonomic Research Foundation, but none of the diseases that the foundation was examining fit his symptoms. So he decided he needed a physician scientist partner that was curious enough to take on a rare case. In 2002, he gave a presentation about his disease at the American Autonomic Society Global Conference. Now, to get there, Lindsay bought a row of airline tickets so with the help of friends, he could lay across several seats during flight. Remember, he couldn't stand. He couldn't do anything. And he'd been in hospital for 11 years. Lindsay, in a wheelchair and wearing a suit and tie, presented himself as a Jesuit-trained scientist. Scientist. So he was telling doctors from Harvard University and the National Institute of Health and the Cleveland Clinic something their medical training was telling them was impossible. But they didn't patronise him. Dr. Cecil Coughlin, a medical professor at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, Birmingham, said he thought Lindsay might be onto something, something that no doctors or scientists have been able to work out. And bearing in mind, he only went to first grade high school. And after that, he conked out. So in early 2004, one of Lindsay's friends rented an SUV, loaded a mattress in the back and drove him lying flat 500 miles to Birmingham. Now, Lindsay suspected his body was producing too much adrenaline. He knew of a drug called, here we go again, Levo something. (laughs) I don't know what, I can't pronounce these bloody ridiculous medical words, which is basically an injection of non-anora adrenaline. I don't know what that is either. And that counters the symptoms created by excess adrenaline. It's something that had never, ever been done before, but Lindsay convinced the doctor scientist to repurpose the drug and he lived on it 24-7 on a noradrenaline drip 24-7 for the next six years, never off the drip. And this drip is something that he came up with, not the doctors, not any of that lot. He came up with himself from reading a 2,200-page medical book. So three scans of his adrenal glands all came back negative. A fourth scan in 2006 showed an abnormality consistent with his new theory. The inner regions of his adrenal glands were enlarged and acting like tumours. The adrenal glands were producing way too much adrenaline. And when the doctors looked back through all recorded cases in history, they'd only found 32 recorded cases of this disease. So Lindsay determined, if there isn't a surgery to fix it, I'm going to make my own surgery. So he built a 363-page PDF. Bear in mind, this guy knows nothing about medicine. And here he is designing an operation, a 363-page PDF which proposed a first-ever human adrenal 
Medelectomy, I think it might be pronounced. He spent 18 months trying to find a surgeon who would do it because if a surgeon did an un unapproved um, procedure, they could lose their licence. And insurance companies won't reimburse a surgery that's never been done before. So it took him a while, but eventually he recruited a surgeon from the University of Alabama who said, okay, I'll do it, I'll take the risk. And in September 2010, Lindsay went to the University Hospital where the doctors successfully extracted one of his adrenal medullas. Three weeks later, Lindsay was able, with a lot of difficulty, to sit up for a period of nearly three hours. Three months later, he had enough strength to be able to walk, but progress was really slow. Two years later, he underwent a second surgery to remove the medulla from his remaining adrenal gland, and by early 2014, he was coming off some of his meds. So against the odds, after what, about 15 or 16 years in a hospital bed, he found a way to save himself that the doctors couldn't do anything about. He graduated in 2016 with a bachelor's degree in biology, and he's now 41 years old. He takes nine medications a day, and his health is far from perfect. He has his life back. He travels, gives speeches, and goes for walks. He's spoken at medical schools, including Stanford and Harvard, and a growing list of medical conferences. He's worked on a case study to be published in the British Medical Journal. Now, he's got to be an inspiration. He gets a disease. No doctors know what it is. He studies it. He determines what the problem is, then creates his own um, operations to fix it without any medical training. So do you get my 30-second read daily business newsletter? We now have about 1.7 million daily subscribers. It takes 30 seconds to read, and every day we tackle a different subject. We talk about advances in medicine to new apps to new technology, subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, etc. And tomorrow I talk about how oversharing is one of the most common security mistakes people make online, and this is according to IBM Security, because regularly provide seemingly harmless details like the name of your pet, where you go on holidays, you know, what your pet name for your wife might be or whatever. And that nearly always gives away your password and it provides the answers to your two-step verification questions for anybody who wants to um, hack you. So it's important to remain extremely sceptical when you're asked for personal details. In fact, you know, we recommend very strongly, do not do it. Do not give any bastard any of your information because they will misuse it. Now, today's interview is with the legendary producer Gary Miller. And Gary's credits include George Michael, David Bowie, Donna Summer, Kylie Minogue, Cliff Richard, Katy Perry, Lionel Richie, and a whole bunch of others. He's also the spearhead of a group that I belong to called Rock Against Trafficking. This is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with Gary in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? 
Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. We're over the past nine years. God, that's a long time to be doing this show, isn't it? We've given you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting people. We've talked about what they do, their exciting new initiatives. And what we try to get out of these interview sessions is we want to find out, apart from what they do and the challenges they face, we try to work out what it is that makes them tick, what's made them successful when 99% of people who are entrepreneurs of one type or another fail. So what is it that makes these 1% successful? Today I'm speaking to a mate of mine, Gary Miller, and Gary's a British pop and rock, he's a legend, absolute bloody legend, and good bloke too. Um, Apart from the fact that he's English. Apart from that, he'd be great. Um, He's a producer, a songwriter, a composer. He's a guitarist. And he's best known for his work with David Bowie. Um, Also with Katy Perry, Donna Summer, Lionel Richie, Kyla Minogue, Bananarama, Simply Red. He's done it all. He um, started his music career during the 80s as a guitarist. And he toured with a guy called Sir Elton John across Europe and the US. So yeah, he knows a few people. He moved to the US in 2006. And he, in 2014, he started the Rock Against Trafficking Foundation, which I'm proud to be a supporter and part of. And it records and releases album projects to raise money and awareness to fight human trafficking The figures on human trafficking are unbelievable. There are currently over 40 million people trapped in slavery conditions across the globe. That is twice the population of Australia. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. So the first Rock Against Trafficking album, Set Them Free, which was produced by Gary and features all sorts of people, um, such as... um, Slash and Fergie, Glenn Hughes, of course, Deep Purple, Santana, Beth Hart. Remember Beth Hart? Big LA song um, a few years ago now. Journey, Hart, Rob Thomas, 
Matchbox 20, um, and a whole bunch of others. And uh, so Gary's produced that album, and it will be part of a big drive to raise money and awareness for Rock Against Trafficking. Hi, Gary. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard right around the world. Oh, well, it's very, very nice to be, have to be on here, Bob. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Well, I, I'm still um, recovering from your big party at your house. Just no, well, you, you was a bit drunk, weren't you, that night? So, um, <laughs> that was a good night, wasn't it? That should have stopped you from falling in the pool, I think. Yeah, well... It didn't really. It was so it's, sober. it's an annual event, so next year I'll fall in the pool. Exactly, yeah. Okay. yeah. Now, <laughs> for the benefit of the audience... Tell, tell me about your musical roots. Um, you grew up in Hull on the east coast of England. So how did you start in the music business? You failed everything at school. It was the only thing you could do, right? Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. As soon as I was 15, I thought, that's it. I don't need to be doing maths and history. I need to be doing music. So, yep. But I started, I started playing. I mean, my, my uncles all played guitar, and my uncle used to react in my grandmother's living room. Right, and uh, so I was I was surrounded by guitars and things, and obviously just started picking the guitar up and learning a few things. It started there. My mother bought me my first tape recorder and my first guitar, and um, I just from from about being nine, ten years old, I was just crazy over music, you know. Yeah, and um, that's that's all that's all I did really, and um, just just basically um, um, then when I was twelve years old. I got my first job in the first, first band doing all the work in men's club, but I was only 12, but because I was tall, I looked a lot older than 12 years old, so I could get away with it. So I started playing in clubs, in working men's clubs up the North East and all in the North from um, from being 12 years old, funny enough. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's, how it, that's how it basically started, and then it just kept progressing and progressing, and I, and I, I sort of like did all the groups in... I lived in Hull and we, I spent years doing all the um, the working men's clubs and doing all that sort of stuff. And then obviously I just came to, then I started writing, you know. Yeah. Uh, everybody used to laugh at me, they used to say. <laughs> and I used to, get, I, used to get, I used to get in the van at the end, you know, to get picked up to go to, to, go to the gigs. And they, were, they, all had, they all had jobs and everything and engineers and stuff like that. And they all used to take the, the piss out on me. So what, they used to ask me, what you've been doing? I said, I've been writing a song today. And I did, because I was the youngest, yeah. and I just, you just take the piss like crazy out of me. You know? <laughs> so when but did I just, I just kept going basically? You know? That's good. When did you start producing? Well, I started producing. Well, basically, before I started producing, what I used to do, I used to do the demos for producers, right? And I started doing a lot of sessions and things like that. And I'd always recorded, but obviously it takes time to get the first production gig. So I start. I mean, I think. In the early, when I, moved, it was when I moved to London, I moved to London in about 85, I think, and still did clubs there, but then I started doing, I think I got my first remix of a BMG, somebody asked me to do a remix for him, so I yeah. did that, and it basically started from doing remixes and then me producing demos for producers, but the problem is, that what, what, what used to happen, I would, do, I would produce the demos for the producers, and they would use all the stuff that I did, but I never used to get a credit for it, you know. So, it was, so it, it just it was just like a progression, really. But it started off with doing remixes for records that were already hit for BMG. That's how it started. Yeah. 
And, uh, and, uh, and, I, and I just kept going and then when I moved to London just kept slogging it away doing auditions and, and I got the, the, the first major tour that I got was with George Michael on the Faith tour right. in, 18, in 89 but I was producing before then but nothing really sort of like that major it was just you know it was after, but when, I, when I finished touring when I did the, finish the tours with, with Elton and, and uh, George I decided, well, I wanted to get back into writing and producing and all that sort of stuff. And then I got offered a job with Pete Walterman, who was responsible right. for, um, you know, Rick Astley and Banana Hammer and Kylie Minogue. Kylie Minogue, yeah. And um, so basically, it was a decision I had to make. Well, did, did I want to go back on the... I mean, I'd done everything. I'd played all the major arenas. And that, so it, it was all sort of like it was a little bit downhill from there because I, I got a bit spoiled, you know. <laughs> and then I did and the last tour I did, I did it with a group called Climby Fisher. Simon Clammy was a big, big songwriter. And then that was the last that was the last tour I did. Then I got offered a job with Pete Waterman and decided to take it because they was doing lots of writing and and producing. And before and then I used to do sessions, I used to do sessions, keyboard sessions and uh, guitar sessions for, you know, in between gigs and things. But then when it was a full-time job once I started with Pete Waterman, you know. But yeah, been yeah. well that was a hit, that was a, that was a big hit machine, wasn't it? It was, it, it was, it was just crazy. There was one point when we had from number one to number ten in the chat. And everybody, hate, and everybody hated us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so basically, it just progressed, and then I just started. Then I joined uh, Metrophonic, who was responsible for doing the Share Believe and Enrique Iglesias, and think we did Tina Turner and Rod Stewart. Because uh, then we had we had a big hit with Believe, which turned, which really turned everything on its head. It was number one in nineteen different countries. So after that. We just got tons and tons of work, you know. And yeah. that was headed by Brian Rawlings in England, and I was working with a great songwriter called Paul Barry, who, who wrote Hero and all sorts of big hits, you know. Yeah. And um, and that's what they, and it's not, they just kept, it kept going on like that. And then I had I'd come to, you know, then I'd been doing that for quite a few years and Waterman and everything. And then I just I've always wanted to sort of like move move on, you know, because I didn't. I'm, I didn't want to get stuck in something where it just becomes boring. So then I got offered, they wanted me to go to Miami to write with a group called No Mercy. So I went to Miami. I was only supposed to be there for two weeks, but I thought, well, I love it here. So I was there for six weeks and then ended up going living in Miami for five years. <laughs> and, and, um, and so I left the production companies and everything and just started doing, you know, doing it, doing it on, on, my, own, on my own level, really. Yeah, well, Miami had to be a big jump up from freezing your tits off in London, right? Oh, it was, it was definitely. <laughs> it, was from, it, was from, it was from Hull to from Hull to London to Miami, and then from Miami to Miami to Malibu. Yeah, I um, uh, yeah. I love the casual way you sort of drop um, um, David and George and Elton. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that, that's how it was. I mean, it was. I know. Well, I was I was in I was in, oh you might have heard but I was in Nick Kershaw's band. I, yeah. I was a I was a big fan of Nick Kershaw when I was in, and then we ended up with the same manager. So me, I was I was working with a guy called Steve Lee, who was an absolute wonderful songwriter and great best great singer, and we were working together, and um, you know we saw this we saw this advertisement 
from this management company to um, you know to, that was looking for new acts. So we posted we posted our songs to it, me and Steve, and it happened to be Nick Kershaw's manager, Spad Fluke, and I was a big fan. You know? Right. So that was that was the first really sort of like exciting thing, and then we so we had the same managers as Nick for a while, and then afterwards he asked me to join the band, and I did that, and so it, we, but it's just how it develops. I mean, and the, and the the third tour was just like I went to a gig um, to see a group called um, Sajdar. There was like the, there was like the English version of the Jacksons, right? And they were they were playing at um, Wembley Arena. So um, I got invited, and I bumped into Dion Estes, who was George Michael's bass player, and and in Wham, and it was it was so casual. It was like, well, we're looking for somebody to um, we're looking for somebody to for this American tour we're doing on the fifth tour. And I just thought, ah, this is just pie in the sky. Yeah. And he just said to me, just out of the blue, and we've been friends ever since for like thirty odd years. He said, what do you fancy doing the gig? So I went. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so I was booked. I was booked on that on that show as the uh, on that concert as the a second keyboard player. And yeah. then, but it developed from there. And the other some other people dropped out. And then I became I, be, I ended up becoming the musical director on the tour for Dion Estes because Dion had a big hit then, and he had a number one record in America. So half the band. Open for George, and then 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 we used to play for George at the same time, you know. Right, you know, sure. afterwards. So that's so it, it was all it it was it was actually it was casual casual as that really. It was like there was no auditions and there was no things like that. It was just it was just. Um, well, you had a reputation, so you know if you got a reputation. I, 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 well, I think at the time why I got these gigs is because at the time there weren't like many sequences like they are out now, so. They used to look for people that could double up on on keyboards and guitar, and, the, and then in London at the time there was only a couple of us that actually played guitar and keyboards to a fashion. So, and I was thankfully I, had, I was one of those people. So it was it was easier to get gigs because I was actually making my guitar, playing my guitar, and then go to keyboards in choruses and things like that. So it, it helped me to to double up, you know, to be able yeah. to double up on guitar and keyboards. And yeah. you know we did. That was that was a dream come true for me. That um, you know that George Michael thing because I've never I've never been to America before. Always wanted to come to America. So to come to America and do that show and George Michael was the biggest. He was bigger than Madonna, Prince, everybody at the time. Yeah, I remember. So I couldn't have done it in the best. In the, it, so my first time in America was like that. That was out. That's that's what I experienced, which was. Wow! So obviously, <laughs> it was it was a little bit like um, it was like a whirlwind, really. It was yeah. like it was like being it was like a, a, being in a party for about five months. I can only rem- I can only remember about two weeks of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised you remember that much. Um, well, maybe, maybe not even that long. <laughs> now you produced for um, Donna Summer and Cliff Richard. Um, I um, you know as you know I think um, I was a singer for twenty odd years. In Australia, and I did a cover. We had a record band in Australia where no English or American records could be played, and so um, I recorded uh, "Goodbye Sam, Hello Samantha," which was Cliff Richard hit, and I got a number four hit out of it. So I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, well, I mean, what all I did for Cliff was I did "Miss You Night." Remember the song "Miss You Night"? Yes. 
Well, that was that, and they wanted to get that redone again. So I redid the full song in more of a modern sort of uh, modern vibe, really. Right. And, um, you know, obviously having the opportunity to working with Pete Waterman, which has become legendary now. It's like it's like history. It's like Motown now. Um, yeah. It just it gives me a lot of opportunities because you'd be, I mean, everybody would be coming in the studio from Charlie Minogue to Banana Rama to Dead or Alive. All the acts that they produced, so obviously you'd get a shot at all that stuff. And the same with Metrophonic, when they had the hit with Shares Believe, everybody on the planet came to us. So it put me in a, it put me in a good opportunity. Put you in a good spot. You know, to, 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 to write and produce for uh, for a lot of these major labels. I mean, thanks to you know like people like Paul Barry and Mark Taylor, who was one of the there was four there was four producers there uh, with Metrophonic, and Brian Rollins was the head of the company, and. Um, we just used to write and you know basically it was like it was like a factory you know I'd get a call in the morning well the, the thing is when I remember we'd done a summer from this was with Pete Walterman and yep. it was about 10 o'clock at night and he said Gary he said uh, I need three songs for Thursday so I said okay people so who was it for and he went on a summer and I said what on a summer so well, what do you want he said, oh you know what to do that's alright <laughs> so I basically it was um it was quite nerve-wracking for me, but it was a great experience because we want we was writing together. So she she walked in, and to actually sit next to, next to Donna Summer writing the song was fantastic. And I'll never forget we'd sitting and done all the lyrics, and we had already done the music, which she really liked. And then she, when she said turn on, I said right, so I'll just go and put a vocal down now. So and when she started singing, I mean, it was just I thought it was just unbelievable. You know? Yeah. And that song that song was called My Life. And unfortunately, she only, she only ever perform, she used to perform it live. Right. She never got to, she never got to record it because obviously she died at sixty three, which is a and we were set to we were set to write with her again and do some stuff for a new album. Right. But unfortunately, she passed away um, before we even got a chance. You know. Speaking but, about people uh, that passed away, um, I guess it was two thousand and sixteen when oh, terrible, yeah. um, George Michael and David Bowie past um, have you got any great recollections of, of either or both of them well both but I mean the thing is I mean George for start, George Michael was one of the nicest men I've ever met and very humble and very you know um, just a fan, just a fantastic songwriter and singer I mean it, it was never like um, like when we saw dinner before the show I mean, George used to come and sit with us, and he was, he was just like, he was just like one of the one of the boys, really. But he was just such a, a great talent and a, such a nice, nice guy. He was a bit tormented after that tour because for a whole year he was the biggest star on the planet, and he couldn't go out, he couldn't do anything. Yeah, and he wasn't. And then, and then he lost his mum, who was very close to, and uh, that was very sad. And I don't think he, you know, it took it took him a long time to time to get over that. And um, it just it just used to get hounded. I mean, you know, it's like in it's different in England. I mean, his front door was basically on the street, so I mean, like every yeah. day he would have the paparazzi outside his house. Everything that he did, and he he just wanted. I mean, it's ironic, really. When he was young and he started, he just wanted to be noticed. And um, but as he as he got older and got all that fame, I mean, people people think to be famous is the best thing in the world I can't think of anything more horrendous to me. neither can I I know a lot of people that you know, have like, breakdowns and not but I mean and he was so he backed out of the scene for quite a while and just carried on doing his records and then he had but as a, as a person 
I mean, it was it was just very quiet, quite a shy, quite a shy guy actually. Yeah, great stage <laughs> presence. Just great stage presence, great songwriter. He knew exactly what he wanted. He knew everything that he wanted on the record, and he just wrote some phenomenal songs. And I, I'm very honoured to have been part of all that stuff. And the same, the same with Elton as well. When um, when we did the Elton John tour, it was all over Europe with Nick Kershaw. Um, Elton was the same thing. I think it, it just it sobered up. I mean, it was all you know. He wasn't doing any of the stuff that he'd done in the past, in the in the history in the past, you know. And Elton, the same thing. Such a nice. Fun, great, great sense of humour guy, you know. You know. Yeah. And, um, and we we had just a great time. The first time I, um, you know, the first gig was it. Well, before the gig in Paris, the first gig was in Paris, and before that gig, it was his fortieth birthday party. Right. So we're all that was a that was, that was crazy. That was such good fun, you know. Yeah, he won't drink. He, he won't drink him, but we all were. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, you know, you know, you know, lavish that that, that Elton does things. Yeah. There was. Um, I always remember. Remember this. There was all the birthday cakes. Was all oh, the must have cost a the must have cost a fortune. They were all piled up. And our management company said to us, "Now, to nobody messing about, messing about here. There's, there's all these people here." So I said, "No, okay, fine, you know." So I'm still looking. I'm still. I'm still looking over these birthday cakes, looking, just admiring, you know, all the stuff. Somebody came behind me and smashed, pushed me back of the head and smashed my face right into this full birthday. Elton's one of one of Elton's birthday cakes. <laughs> and it was like the management was so pissed off but it was, it was fun though and um, you know but it, it, that was a, that was a great so we played all the big arenas in, in Europe with him so it, that was a great experience as well you know yeah now so, good people good people really good great yeah I'm, I find you know obviously I don't know anywhere near as many famous people as you do but I know quite a few and um, they are in the main, shy and uh, yeah, yeah. quiet, like to be, um, in, you know, in a small group. They're not, not keen on being in a big group. And as soon as they're on stage or in front of a camera, bingo, a total transformation happens. It's really quite interesting. Yeah, Michael Jackson was like that. Michael Jackson was a quiet guy, and then he got on stage, and he just knew what he wanted, you know, same it, thing. Such such a brilliant talent. Okay, so more recently, you've devoted your own time and plenty of it and money to a cause that while it's obviously worthy, there's a lot of worthy causes in this world, why did you pick Rock Against Trafficking? I mean, I said, I mentioned earlier, there's 40 million people. Um, I know, yeah. It is a staggering number. And uh, 25% of those 40 million, 10 million, are children. So oh, yeah. why did you, what was, what was the most important reason that you decided to really get involved? I mean, you just don't, you don't just support this. I mean, it's, it's in your soul. I mean, you're yeah, it is now, yeah. right in well, it. I mean, basically, again, again, it was like like most most things that's happened to me. It's just a case of you know having staying power and going with it. Um, if I if I'm going to do anything, I always want to do it properly. Otherwise, I'd, well, I'd rather not do it at all. But how it happened there was a guy called I was producing a group called Tattoo from Russia. Yeah, some big hits and stuff like that. And the manager was a guy, a guy called David Junk. 
who was the head of Universal in Russia or something like that. And he came, we was after, I played him these songs for, for Tattoo, the, the two girls, you know, that were, that yeah. were in there, which they loved and everything. And so we built a relationship up, and then he, he brought this little booklet in and said, have you ever seen this before? And I was looking through it, and he, was, he wanted to do a project, and he, he wanted to do this project and everything like that. And I said, I've never, I've never heard of this before. This is, I said, this is ridiculous. I've never seen anything like it. I said, I'd love to be involved with something like that. Anyway, he sort of like, he, he never sort of like, he never sort of like carried it on, and we was going to do a, a project, but nothing, nothing really happened. So I, I just took it on, the, on, on my own, and I just thought, you know, we, we've had all this stuff like, and it was supposed to be a three-month project in the beginning. And that three months, that three months, ten to seven years, and that's that. I mean, I've been, I've been involved with this now for seven. I started my foundation seven years ago. Right. But I wanted, I wanted to do a theme, a theme still. So rather than just do one song like "We Are the World" or, you know, you know the the Blavid thing, which everybody was doing, and, and sure. you know, and it was all, it was, ne it never happened again, and I don't think it ever will like that. So I wanted to do something different. So the idea, I thought, well, I'd like to do this, but. I'd like to do an album so that at least if I do an album of tw 12 tracks, we can release a song every month, which will keep that going for a whole year. Yes. Obviously, you know, it's like I've just done a lot of things and, and um, I, I knew nothing about a 501c3 or a charity or a foundation. It was just something that I thought, well, I could do an album for this. I decided to change, pick, pick police, sting, sting in the police songs. Yeah. I just thought, I thought, well, with, Sting, Sting songs and the police as a band, you know, there's every, nearly every artist on the planet at some point is, has got a Sting or Police song that they like. Yeah. So I thought it would be easier if I could, if I contacted the artist and said, what's your favourite Sting or the Police song? And that, that, that's how I basically started it. And it was all, we had, we had, you know, there was no money to do anything. So the first track I did was, uh, I had a meeting with Slash. Yeah. And so Slash was the first one on. So I met him at, and we had we had um, breakfast one day in Los Angeles, and he'd never heard of it before. He just as soon as I told him about it, that I just found out. He said, "I'm in." So he did guitar on "So Lonely," and it, and it started like that really. And then um, when he got it, he liked what I did. So then he said, "Oh, Fergie would be good for this." And then Glenn Hughes came on. Somebody reckon, recommended Glenn, you know, Glenn Hughes. And it, he's it, a good it, singer, that boy. I mean, Glenn's, I mean, I think Glenn's got one of the best voices on the planet. <laughs> and he came, in, he came in and sang, sang Roxanne, and it was just like, well, we got to, we actually got Roxanne to number seven in the in the rock charts with no record label, no distribution, nothing. You know? Right. But the, the problem, obviously, with all this stuff, I funded this um, this thing basically personally, and you know, with a little bit of help from different people. But obviously, as I kept going me thinking that I had the right people behind me obviously as you find that you found out the hard way I didn't have the right people and it took me I think I had to get rid of four or five five CEOs I think before you know because everybody was in it for the wrong reason but, you know they saw all the star power behind it and it was like and that's what it was and, and you know people used to last three or four months when there was no pay involved you know which they, it was their job to raise the money, which they never ever did. They, they just, yeah. They, the first thing that everybody wanted to do was just you know be associated, which which was fine, which was fine, but but it was quite it was you know it took, it took it's taken a long time to get this to get this together really. I mean it, the album the, the album's been finished for 
nor in there on two years now, but obviously it's all been mastered and everything, but without, you know, people have said, why don't you put the, put the album out? So I said, well, you know, with this, with the, with the stars that are on this album, you know, I can't just throw this album out. It needs proper promotion, a worldwide promotion. Yeah, very great. Money, and money to, money to put this out. Yeah. But obviously that's that's a task in itself and it's taken so long to get together, but I've just stuck, stuck with it. And then I met up with a guy called Tyler Prescott. Yeah, good guy. Who, who uh, does into marketing, who's a musician himself and a great musician, a songwriter and everything. He's very talented. He'd, he'd been offered a couple of couple of deals and then decided that the deals were so bad for the majors, he would just start investigating who was using what, do you know what I mean? What marketing team, what PR company. So he, he pulled away from his own deals and decided to, you know, to investigate, you know, what what record companies did. And then we thankfully set up and he's, he's basically the first person that I've been involved with in seven years that has done, done everything without question the right way and he's pulled everything together rocking and trafficking his wife's done a, his wife does, has done a great um, Rachel she's done a great website for the organisation so I feel now that we're, 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 we've got all the ducks in a row because like I say when it started for me I didn't know anything about that it was, it was a case of just yeah I'll just make an album for three months I've done my bit now and um, but it's one of them things that you, when when you get involved with it, it's something that you can't just turn off. You can't just say, no, that's well, right. that now, and that's it. And then the, another major part of it was Andy Fraser. Oh, um, oh, I was a fan. He was in the band Free, yeah. and he wrote all right. He wrote the song all right now, and Mad Brother Jake, and all these big hits that Free had. But, you know. And I wanted, and I got, in, I wanted to get in touch with him. So I got in touch with him by Facebook. Never heard anything from him at all. He must have never got it. But eventually, through a mutual friend, we actually met up. I told him about it, and he was right on board. And obviously, with Free and all the people that he'd been, he then had a lot. Of, it, it, I mean, Andy Fraser, to me, was one of the world's a tastiest bass players. And I think most people will will agree as well. So, yeah. you know, he knew a lot of people as well, and so he used his connections. And then we started, you know, really, really knuckling down. He, he put all his time into it as well. And um, and he was a big, big ally. But unfortunately, right out of the blue, sadly, he passed away, which is one of the biggest shocks I've ever had. Yeah. I was to, we were supposed to be having a meeting on the Tuesday. I got, a, I got a call from his PR people saying, have you spoke to Andy? And I'd not spoke to him. Then we found out later and then I got a phone call and I was the first one to get the phone call actually saying that Andy had passed away yeah. at home which is very very sad so it, it was it, Andy Fraser and the, the, the album is dedicated to the memory of Andy because he put you know he really through all the bullshit that was going on yeah there's another English guy and stuff like that and it was like there was no bullshit with him he was just really dead straightforward so I really liked that it's it, a, it was, it, if it wouldn't have been, if it hadn't been for Andy, it wouldn't it wouldn't have, I would have never made it through. Yeah, it's very difficult. It's very difficult, isn't it? With um, I mean, I guess there's so many causes and so many people after, after money. It's, it is hard. Doesn't matter how good your cause is, it's bloody hard, and it's hard to organise. I'm the chairman of um, uh, the Australian Theatre Group in Los Angeles, and um, you know we're a 
a non-profit and we're always, we're putting on we put on shows and whatever but that only produces a certain amount of money you need a, a lot more than that yeah. and all the government bullshit you've got to go through and you know oh, yeah. all the red tape was one yeah. c3s and yeah you know, see my idea was like I'm, I'm not with charities. I've seen there's all charities that are out there, but I, I looked into a few of them, and then they, they, they'd get all this money. They'd pay, they'd pay the CEO maybe a couple of hundred grand or hundred grand a year, and all this sort of. So only a small amount went to the went to the cause. True. And then they have, they have lots lots of lots of them that I saw that was all the same. But then I found the good. I found the you know the good ones. And there was slavery in no more, and Cast was one of the first ones here. And um, so, but what I, I saw all these, I saw the real ones, and all they would do it. They're, they're having all doing fundraising, fundraisers all the time. You know, with a, with a handout for money. I really didn't want to do that. So what I, I took on a massive task of thing, creating this record. So I thought, well, if we get a great record and we create awareness, and by the way, when I started this in seven years ago. Everybody that I used to talk to said, oh, don't tell me, we don't want to know, we don't want to know. Nobody knew about it, not even the police. I had meetings with FBI. Nobody knew about this, what was going on. Yeah. You know, it was amazing. For and I, I, remember, I remember saying to them, do you want, to cook two or three years' time, it would be headline news and everybody will be talking about this. And that's... That's, that's what happened. And that's exactly what's happened. Yeah, it is. So but what I wanted to do, I, did, I wanted to create a self-sustainable business but obviously I don't like 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 man in man did I've, I've been in the studio on my life yeah so me me create the business and not knowing anything about it was something that I did. you know it, it was tough so I, I had massive massive learning curves you know and um, so it was, it was it was very it was very tough for me to you know you know to, to sort of like to grips with it all really but we in time you know I did do it but I want the, the main thing which is what I still wanted which is what I'm doing it's not what I wanted to do is create a business that can sell records, do tours, you know, sell merchandise. Yeah. So I thought the best way of doing it is if you've got an album, once, once we have success with this album, we get the funding. I mean, the sky's the limit, really, because yeah. this means that the all all the proceeds, apart from just minimal um, administration costs, because there's not a lot anywhere, because there's basically True. me and Jet who's, yeah. who's come up on board there's not a lot of people now obviously your, your can self and, and Michael Garber who's been, who introduced me to you and so now for the first for the first time I feel that I've got the right team behind what I'm trying to do and it's, it's not it's a no bullshit team no you know like yeah it is I've, I've, I agree I've, so and that's what I've needed and, and like I say Tyler is on the ball every day. He gets up in the morning. He's working on talking to people and doing all the presentations and stuff like that. Well, but I really, the, the the idea of it all is not. To, and I've never done one fundraiser. But the thing is, I didn't want to do a fundraiser because I didn't want people to think, even though the dudes they have thought, I didn't want people to think that I was just doing these albums with all these big stars raking a load of money in and doing yeah. fundraisers. So we've never done one fundraiser. We've never raised one thing. It's all been in town money, you know. Yeah. But well, they, 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 they get, doing the business, I want to create a business that that's, um, that's and it's not just rock against trafficking now. It's rock against 
you know, we can have mental health, we can have homelessness, sure. sure. it's, it's like it's like everything really, you know. So it's, create, it's creating a business that's self-sustainable that you don't necessarily have to go with your hand out like Oliver Twist and saying, um, oh, please, sir, can I have a bit more? Because it's not, I've just not, it's not for me that all. I found that very difficult. So. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, you've got our support fully. Um, now, Penny Fly, you've got um, yourself yeah. uh, and Jet. And well, it's, it's actually Jet's, it's Jet's organisation, like I said, where, which is Jet, is Tyler. He, and Tyler, his yeah. Name, his, his, his name is Jet, but his, his, um, his business name is Tyler, you know. Yeah. But the thing is, he started that before 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 I met him, and we was talking, say, for about a year, and he was, in, we, again, we was going through, me and him went through the same thing. He got, he had somebody on his side that was supposed to be right for us, and I had somebody on my side that was wrong. And then we f- we finally discovered after a, you know after talking and and uh, you know, it was it was the, it was the right fit. So he'd done a lot of stuff like that. Sort of the fit with me doing music and him doing his marketing and stuff like that was a pe- it was a perfect fit, you know. Right. So Penny Penny Fly, we're we're pretty much out of time. But Penny Fly Entertainment um, is designed to sort of challenge the old industry models which have been disrupted and have gone by the by anyway by offering better opportunities to new and established talent and uh, what's the principal way you're going to do that? Well it's, it's quite simple really obviously because you know now it's not so much in production well it is in production but you've got to have both you've got to have the marketing and the PR and stuff like that and um, we're doing it independent. There's a lot of independent artists out there yeah. who don't know what to do. They don't know what to do anymore. You can't get to a record company like I used to do when I was young. Well, the studios, the, 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 the companies today do fuck all for anybody apart from the big guys. There's like 2% that don't do anything for the independent artists. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's what we've got to look at. We've got to look at the independent artists. And we offer like a 50-50 deal where it's, 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 all, it's all in where it's production, songwriting, websites, marketing, PR people, and, and you know, so it's, it's the whole, it, we've actually got the same ingredients that a major label would do. And I've written a lot of songs, I've worked for major labels for years, so I've got the knowledge of how it works from there. Yeah. And Jet's got the knowledge of all, you know, the independent side of it all. And that's working, so that's what we're working on now, and that's working really, really well, so we'll do a 50-50 deal with them. And we can produce, write, market them, and 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 it's quite straightforward, really. And he's got all the people, the the marketing people that market Mumford and Son and and Britney Spears. And we've got all the same people that would the record company would use. But obviously, we don't have with and being the independent, we don't have the we don't have the independent we don't have the independent um, we don't have the money that makes that. So. Yeah, yeah. So. But it's obviously that's a bit of a struggle, but we're, we're, we're getting by, and people more and more are coming to it. It's like, in fact, it's nearly every day now that people are trying the YouTube thing out. It doesn't work. They get to a they get to a brick wall, and we've got one artist that's come to. She's got thirty eight million followers on, on on her site. Yeah, but she's not she's not a, she's not a big star. She's not earning any money. So we have to, we have to tr- and there is a lot of money in music still. People think there isn't, but there is. There's billions of dollars. It's a, a massive industry. It's just you've got to know where to go because I think the powers that be 
they don't want it. They don't want the independent artists to know that being on YouTube and Vimeo and and SoundCloud is not going to get them anywhere. Well, if you in. if you get two if you get two million um, streams on YouTube, you make about yeah. seven dollars fifty. <laughs> that's crazy. I'm serious. I'm serious. Well, that's what I mean. And also, these these young these young kids that are doing this and doing the independent level. I mean, it's all right doing it like that and getting that fame and that success because people are more interested in being famous now. Yeah. But the real musicians and the it's in the body, it's in the soul. You know, they just love music and it's the, it's the actual. It's not so much the fame. It's it's like the it's the uh, it's the process of doing music is so. You know, it's just music is just a God-given thing. It's been there sure. from, from forever, and it's and it's, it's meant to. I believe it's meant to help people and do. And that's one other thing that I think. But all you know, it's meant to help. With music is a powerful tool. Isn't it? In fact, I think the entertainment industry causes is the biggest tool possible. You know. I agree, but, Gary. Where we want to do it, we want to do it for independent. And there's two things: the rock against trafficking, and there's the independent thing with Penny Flag that we've yeah. got, which is which is. And there's only, there's only two of us basically, and but we, we have all the you know the satellite people out there ready ready to go when we when we get the funding. Well, so, Michael, we, we, Michael Garbett and I are working on a couple of ideas, um, and uh, so we're looking forward to. Um, doing those with you but thanks very much Gary for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard radio show now to contact Gary go to Pennyfly which is P-E-N-N-Y F-L-Y entertainment dot com or rock against trafficking dot com dot org sorry so rock against trafficking dot org or pennyflyentertainment.com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network right after this short break. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network you are listening to the bob pritchard radio show to connect with bob please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com that's bob at bobpritchard.com now back to the show Welcome back to the 406th Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Absolutely No Bullshit Business Radio Show. We're coming at you on Voice America Business Network and we're broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in the entertainment capital and technology capital of the world, Los Angeles, California. Now, Elon Musk says that his uh, new SpaceX Starship could ferry passengers between any two cities in uh, on Earth i.e. Los Angeles and London or wherever you want to go, in less than one hour. So you'll be able to fly right across the world in less than an hour. And uh, he says the experience of travelling on one of these Earth-to-Earth flights would feel a bit like riding Disney Space Mountain Ride. However, there's a couple of tricks to it. You can't move around 
there's not enough room to move around, and all the seats are coach class, and there's no toilets or anything. So there's no luxury. Once you're on it, though, but you can go from Sydney, Australia to London in one hour. That's pretty cool, pretty quick. Now, I want you to remember that if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up way too much space. Get out of the road and let somebody who wants to achieve get past you. If you're just sitting there and not doing anything and not trying to achieve, you're just a fucking waste of space. So get out of the way. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. If you're always trying to be normal, you're always going to be seriously boring. In the meanwhile, have a great week. Continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard, broadcasting day from my wonderful hometown of Los Angeles, where technology meets entertainment. See you next week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.